Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. For all things legal and some that aren't, I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Hesslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Mercedes. We're here today at Miranda Warnings with Nelson Dennis, who's been a passionate voice for uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, welcome, Mr. Dennis. Thank you for being on Miranda Warnings. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So Nelson is a graduate of Harvard College and, and Yale Law School. He's a, a former member of the New York State Assembly, and he's the author of the book entitled The War Against All Puerto Ricans. Uh, so thank you, Nelson, for being on the show today. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, Puerto Rico, uh, some of the devastation and human suffering that continues today in Puerto Rico because of Hurricane Maria last year. But before we get to that, I think it would be helpful to talk a little bit about the history of Puerto Rico as a territory and why some of the U.S. government policies and regulations have compounded the island's troubles of the last 15 months. Uh, I think that, that that's, uh, history uh, is a precursor. So to, to understand where we are, look just, just look a little bit, go a little bit beneath the surface. And it, in the case of Puerto Rico, it's really helpful. Uh, I, I often, I was telling you earlier that Puerto Rico could be called a tale of two hurricanes um, because recent history really very, uh, in a, a granular way, replicates uh, a previous hurricane. The United States went in 1898. In 1899, the largest hurricane of that century, Huracan San Siriaco, devastated the islands, coffee crop. I mean, thousands of farms were just were, were stripped there. Uh, U- U.S. relief was really very, very slim, uh, and that was in 1899. Uh, for the following year, they they devalued the island's currency by 40%. That was the first major economic action in, in Puerto Rico. Um, so imagine what that would do here in the United States, a devaluation where everyone is 40% poor and all their, their debts concomitantly are 40% higher. So that was, that was, there were, so those are two hits, the hurricane and our currency devaluation. Then the very following year through the Puerto Rico Federal Relations Act and the Foraker Act, uh, they created a steeply graduated set of property taxes that hadn't existed before. So with all those economic hits created a situation where far- farmers literally are losing their land. They're being expropriated. They needed capital infusion quickly. There was no place they could go except for one, was appropriately called the American Colonial Bank. That was the uh, one place it could go. And it was like Phil Rizzuto at the Muddy Store. Come on down. Well, the, the money was there. They wanted it. They very quick with the loans because they knew that the farmers probably would have to default. And they didn't want the loans repaid. What the American Colonial Bank wanted, wanted was the underlying collateral, the land. And so what you saw was within 30 years, by the time of the Great Depression, 80% of the farmland in Puerto Rico was owned by North American bank, banking syndicates. So, uh, and so of course, you know, of course, Puerto Rico, had, Puerto Rico had uh, tremendous natural resources uh, that, uh, you know, corporations in the U.S. obviously wanted to have access to. Obviously, the, the sugar crop was very important. And when you had these loans, that were provided uh, in you know a situation where uh, the economy was poor. Uh, you had these banks that made the loans and then were able to basically consolidate the power over uh, Puerto Rico's really precious uh, resources. 
Well, yeah, and it was also it was the creation and imposition of a sugar of a plantation economy because previously, Puerto Rico had a, a diversified, self-sustaining agriculture: coffee, tobacco, sugar, pineapple, fruit, all sorts. It it was a self-feeding, self-sustaining environment. Eighty percent of the Puerto Rican, uh, a, a little over 80, 80 to 85, by varying estimates, of the Puerto Rican economy was agriculture in the turn of century. Today, it is 0.8%. Hmm. It's at one hundredth of the economy of what it was. And they, tur- they, they, they turned that diversified agriculture into a one-crop cash cow economy that is sugar. And as you said, they created an economy to scale. They, they combined the land holdings. Four cents, they, uh, they, they, the corporations were called centrales. Centrales and four of them, Aguirre, Fajardo, East Puerto Rico Sugar, and Guanica, those four owned half of that 80%, just four of them. Um, so you rapidly got into a, a situation where people that were, that were self-sufficient, uh, not, not, not dependent, you, forced into a position of structural dependency. Let me give, I'll give you an analogy. I was thinking about this. As, as lawyers, as, you know, in terms of your, uh, your, your listeners, imagine if you, you pass the bar exam, you go through that hell, you, you develop, you know, sort of a solo practice. You're not, you're not like a big white shoe law firm, but you, you know, you have a diversified self-sustaining, you know, you're, you're doing okay. Then someone that comes, uh, an entity comes and says, we are here to help you. We're here to protect you. We're here to bring you the blessings of enlightened civilization, which are the exact words told to Puerto Rico. But then what happens is they take away your law license. They say that you can't practice law. Someone else is going gonna, is gonna to take over your practice. But you also can't practice law. And in addition, when you try to get a job, you were not able to, you were denied a minimum wage. All of those things are what occurred in Puerto Rico. People had their land take away, taken away from them. Then they start working as sugar, you're cutting sugarcane, and they couldn't even get minimum wage on the land that used to belong to them. And so what's happened over the, over the decades is that they've replaced this, this, this paradigm of being self-sustaining into uh, constantly having these subsidies. They've been a sort of a red carpet stretching to, from Wall Street to San Juan for the last hundred years, where major corporations get 20-year tax abatements on interest, dividend, and capital gains income. And then when that 20-year period lapses, they leave. And then people are unemployed all over again. And it's been that sort of situation where you just have these sort of these band-aids on something that's a much deeper wound right. that eventually it's not going to work. So you can say, yes, Puerto Rico owns owes $73 billion as a public debt. But you can also say that if you have a Jones Act that was established in 1920, Section 27 of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, that basically forces – all the products that come into Puerto Rico, which is an island which has to import, especially since now it's not even feeding itself. And because of that Jones Act, the, the, the prices of everything, including oil, which is necessary to run the energy grid, because all the electricity in Puerto Rico is, conver- is from converted imported oil. And it's all costing 15 to 20% more on an island where the per capita income is less than half that of Mississippi, 50% that. 
Well, let's fifty percent better, Mississippi, the poorest state in the union. It's a prescription for ongoing failure, and what you're doing is you're blaming the victim when when you say that they owe you money. Right, and I want to talk about the Jones Act because, as you know, the New York State Bar Association and the City Bar has come out uh, in support of legislation that would. Uh, eliminate Puerto Rico from being subject to the Jones Act. And, and we should talk a little bit about what that is and, and how it's really handcuffing Puerto Rico. But just to just to summarize what you were talking about, what happened when Puerto Rico became a territory, the, the land previously and, the, and the, the resources were owned by the Puerto Ricans and they would, uh, they would work the, the land and, and make a small profit. And then when the U.S. came in, all those dollars were being shipped back to corporations into the U.S. So the real profit um, that otherwise would have stayed in the island and made it a, a, a profitable, lucrative island were now being shipped back to uh, large corporations in, you know, throughout the United States. And uh, so as you talked about, some of the Band-Aids of loans um, – really didn't help the underlying problem that uh, we had where the uh, resources and value was being basically exported off the island into the pockets of banks and corporations in the U.S. mainland. Yeah, and it's a, and it's a, it becomes a structural dependency because if the only capital concentrations that can occur is from foreign capital because the Puerto Ricans are basically they, they're bereft of their own private economy, then they will always be depending on these foreign corporations and these foreign subsidies. And it's not some sort of inherent defect on the, as if Puerto Ricans are, are less entrepreneurial. It's that they're specifically precluded from doing it. Puerto Ricans are statutorily prohibited from engaging in their own international trade relations. They can't set the pricing structure. The United States does that. And that's, related, that's that. related to the Jones Act. So let's talk about the Jones Act. 1920, uh, Puerto Rico's a territory. Uh, at that time, uh, Puerto Rican citizens are, are U.S. citizens as well. Uh, and, you know, we have, we're about to be involved in uh, World War One, And so the U.S. government uh, provides uh, the Jones Act which requires that uh, ship, shipping and vessels be uh, U.S. owned, right? That's yeah, the, well, is that the you, background yeah, for you, it? Yeah, yeah, but you may have conflated two things, which is good, because then we can add another piece of information. Prior to World War I, immediately prior, was something called the Jones-Shafroth Act, hmm. and that was promulgated on March 2, 1917, and that uh, basically imposed you know, a bit... You, other people might think otherwise, but it it, uh, it made Puerto Ricans U.S. citizens. And I say imposed because a month later, exactly a month later, on April 2, 1917, Woodrow Wilson declared, uh, sent his declaration of war to U.S. Congress. And 18,000 Puerto Ricans were conscripted, drafted, you know, mandatorily into the into the U.S. Army. So that was the Jones-Shafroth Act in 1917. The Jones Act was 1920. And it's Section 27 of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. And it's really easy. It, it, to this day, people are, because it's, you know, Jones-Shafra, Jones Act. Even when you go on Wikipedia, <laughs> I, there's a confusion there. So, but it's, it's that simple. The Jones-Shafra and then the Jones Act. Now, the Jones Act was also related to World War One because the German U-2 boats technology was so superior, they sank about 5,000 ships during World War I in the Atlantic Ocean. 
And in order to protect the ships, the shipping lanes, and the coastlines, it made sense that the United States did not have a merchant marine prior to that. So the Jones Act created a merchant marine, and, and the way that it's funded is by charging duties, taxes, fees to basically any foreign registry vessels, they have to pay extra money. And that helps to, and that makes sense. You know, hey, you guys want to come in here uh, when we need to protect ourselves from you, you, you know, you're going to bear the price. But here's, if you fast forward now, uh, almost 100 years later, there's no German U-2-boats lurking off the coast of Puerto Rico. And what, what the Jones Act is doing is these, these extra fees now, by the way, uh, Puerto Rico, the, the monies from the Jones Act uh, uh, costs are, are about 20% of the budget of the U.S. Merchant Marine. It comes from Puerto Rico. So a, a ship comes into the United States, since Puerto Rico has to import, you know, just about everything, um, it's, it's a captive market. And if it's from any foreign source, if it comes straight to Puerto Rico, it has all these extra costs that get passed on to the Puerto Rican consumer. There's another, an option to that. The ship can go to a, specifically one town, Jacksonville, Florida, where all the goods have to be offloaded off the foreign vessel, reloaded onto a U.S. vessel, and then that U.S. vessel reroutes back to Puerto Rico. That, that's, you know, it's a bit dysfunctional. Uh, I tell so, people that— And also costly. And so whether you're going through the— uh, you know, paying the extra, basically tariffs on uh, importing from other countries into into Puerto Rico directly, um, or whether you're paying the extra charges of of this relationship in Jacksonville, where the the, the goods get uh, uh, you know offloaded, just, and yeah, offloaded and reloaded. There's another cost to that, and you know the the shipping vessels that do this know what the tariffs are, so they you know, make it comparable, it looks like, and you've reported that it's about an increase of about 20% on every product that uh, someone is buying in Puerto Rico. And then it does, there's one other corollary, but, but vital effect. And that is, it's simple economics. Major U.S. consumer good companies know that. They, can, they know the manifests that are coming off these ships. They, they know the history of this pricing structure. And they know that Puerto Ricans are very price sensitive because they don't have a lot of money. So if they can buy the same fungible good for a few pennies less, they will. So therefore, what the U.S. corporations can do is they can, they can jack up their prices, but instead of 20%, they'll do it maybe 18%, just a little less, right. and they will still sell their goods. It is for that reason that Puerto Rico is the fifth largest market for U.S. goods in the, in the world. That little island, you know, full of, you know, impoverished, is the fifth largest market. There's more Walmarts and Walgreens, Walgreens per square mile in Puerto Rico than anywhere else on, on the planet. And the problem then, the structural problem, is that you will have companies like Kellogg's, Procter & Gamble, the automobile companies, the same car costs $6,000 more in San Juan than it does in Miami. So you have a sort of a knotted group of, they're not evil, but it's just, it's economics. It becomes vested interests. And all of these vested interests have a, a, a deeply invested in keeping the Jones Act alive and well in Puerto Rico. Right. It legally it doesn't have to be. The Virgin Islands were, were exempted from it about 80 years ago. And their prices are a lot less. 
for the for the same good. Right. So we that's what we need to look at right now. That's a key a key element in helping Puerto Rico go forward. And so you have this, you know, even you know, obviously for a hundred years, you've had this, uh, you know, substantial increase in the cost of goods in Puerto Rico, anywhere from, as you mentioned, 18% to 20%, depending on the goods. But it's for almost all goods uh, that come in, not just cars or oil or apples, but almost everything that comes into the island. Um, and then uh, you have... Uh, and, and can I let me yeah, uh, sure. add one thing? Let me reiterate this. Oil is key because the entire energy system, the energy grid of PREPA, the Puerto Rico Electrical Power Authority runs entirely on oil. So there is another deeply vested interest. There right. are, is a really strong group that wants to maintain some archaic energy technology in Puerto Rico because they're making a bundle off it too. Yeah, and I want to talk about that. But I, sticking with the Jones Act, uh, to be able to talk about why some relief from the Jones Act would be helpful at this time, because we have Puerto Rico who's uh, paying, you know, like you said, 18 to 20% more for products, but also is uh, one of the lowest per capita income uh, uh, of any uh, part of the country. Uh, no, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, less, it's less than half that of Mississippi, which is the poorest state in the country. So you've Not got this combination. Lowest, you've got this combination of low income, um, uh, exorbitant prices for things. And then you have Hurricane Maria, where now we need new infrastructure. People need their homes repaired. People need food and water. And the, the thought is at this point, um, let's, this is the time to release Puerto Rico from the Jones Act so Puerto Rico can get back on its feet. And, uh, you know, what, what we have, we had a 10-day uh, amnesty on the Jones Act right after Hurricane Maria, which was basically used nothing. Um, and now we have 15 months out and the, you know, the island is still struggling and the, the, there's no need, need for the Jones Act today, obviously. And it would provide, it wouldn't be the answer to all of its problems, but it would give them a foundation to start building from without having their hands tied behind their back whenever they try to buy something. Yeah, and that's where two dynamics come in. Um, what you mentioned earlier, what happens in Puerto, uh, Vegas stays in Vegas, what happens in Puerto Rico never happened. I had submitted that same op-ed to the New York Times about the Jones Act, uh, Senor Miranda, por, por dos años. For two years, I had been submitting that same editorial. It literally took a hurricane for the, the Times to run it. And then some, it surprised even me. If you look at the date of the op-ed article that, the Times published, then all of a sudden it jumped to Forbes, Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, uh, the the Wire Service, uh, CBS News. I, it was to me it was it was I had no idea that it was going to cascade like that. And then within a week is when Trump then declared his ten day moratorium. So the point I'm making is that that problem, that structural, that gr great dysfunction, has been there all along. But it took a hurricane for this window of opportunity for the New York Times to say, all right, let's, you know, let's run this. And that's just an example of the problem of the quandary that Puerto Rico was in, because when it, it when it captures the public attention, you might get you get a window of opportunity, a very short one. And then life being what it is, the world moves on and the problems don't get resolved. So that, that's one dynamic, that the issue that Puerto Rico was very rarely on the pu public radar, so rarely do you get comprehensive solutions from Congress. 
you know, you put their feet to the fire, you might get some little action, and then they move on to something else. The second dynamic was the taxation. It, it, to me, it boggled me that within that context, with people becoming aware of the Jones Act, the problems uh, post-Hurricane Maria, that the Republican tax package that, that now that performed, quote-unquote, reformed some major swaths of, of our, our income tax reporting included a 12.5% additional tax on, many, on the export of many Puerto Rican goods. Now, if you have a Jones Act that is adding a 15 to 20% cost for imports, then you have a hurricane. Then after the hurricane, Puerto Rico has to pay an additional 12.5% tax on, on key exports. You're practically dooming the, the Puerto Rican economy. And you have to, what is the thinking behind it? Puerto Rico was, was deemed a foreign jurisdiction. That's how they brought it under the coverage of the, of the Republican tax plan to pay the extra 12.5%. But under two Supreme Court cases, like Sanchez Valle and another case just a year and a half earlier, Puerto Rico, they affirmed the supremacy and territorial clauses of the U.S. Constitution to declare that Puerto Rico was a territorial possession of the United States. So how can you be a possession of, a territory of the United States in one year, and then in the following year, you're a foreign jurisdiction after a hurricane? Doesn't make sense, does it? Does not make sense. And so instead of uh, lifting the re the restrictions and impositions of the Jones Act, instead there's this additional 12.5% export tax that, that actually didn't start until 2017. And so uh, we're really going in the opposite direction. And you talk about, well, Puerto Rico was uh, considered, you know, uh, a foreign jurisdiction. If it was, in fact, a foreign jurisdiction, they would probably be better off because they would have they these types of impositions could not be imposed taxes could not be imposed on them, uh, and they would have some bargaining power in trying to negotiate with uh, the U.S. government. As you indicated, Puerto Rico is the you know sixth largest uh, uh, user of uh, U.S. Uh, products, uh, so they would have if they were in fact a, a foreign entity, they would have be in a better position than the position that they're in now. In a post-Citizens United world where, let's face it, money has a, a, a disproportionate sway now in Congress. If there are some concentrated uh, areas, I'll give you one more, so just so you'll bear, uh, bear this in mind. Uh, Puerto Rico does not have, to have access to Chapter 9 bankruptcy because it's not a state. So whenever it enters into a debt situation, it can't use that as a way of renegotiating or restructuring its debt. That is very important to Wall Street because the municipal bond market is $3.7 trillion a year, roughly. The U United States gross national product, the American economy, is roughly 19 to 20 trillion a year. So in any given year, if you divide 3.7 into 19 and 20, it's about 20 to 22 percent. 20 to 22 percent of the American economy is being filtered through these financial instruments known as municipal bonds. Okay, if Puerto Rico is given access to Chapter 9 bankruptcy and it can renegotiate its debt, its municipal bond debt, which is basically the, 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 the major portion of this debt, um, then all 50 states would say, hey, what's good for the goose, good for the gander. So suddenly you have 50 states demanding the same thing, the, the, the same discretion to renegotiate their debt portfolio. That would be basically that would be a potential implosion of the municipal bond market. 
Do you think Wall Street is would be a you know would, it would be uh, would be uh, inclined to to allow this or to allow the triple tax exempt bonds that Puerto Rico can issue, which it can't if it becomes a state. Puerto Rico, because it is an estate, can issue, and those the yields on those bonds can be can be pretty healthy. So Wall Street also has a vested interest in keeping things just the way they are. So when you have these this concentration of large economic in, uh, uh, interests, which under the cover of Citizens United can apply a lot of pressure in the halls of Congress, and then you have an American public that you know, I mean, everybody. Uh, I'm, I'm Puerto Rican. Maybe if I were Irish, Italian, or Polish, I wouldn't be as concerned about that. That's human nature. So we're in a position, situation where Puerto Rico is always going to be in a, is going to be sort of at the tail end of the public discourse. Right. And that's a shame. We're talking, we're talking about human beings and we're talking about American citizens. Right. Uh, I think that's an excellent point. Uh, they are American citizens. And, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the debt because I think there's a misconception uh, amongst a lot of people about this debt. You've described the debt as being uh, a Ponzi scheme for the banks and the hedge funds. And so uh, because of some of the regulations and policies uh, that the government posed, you know, years ago, uh, the uh, people of Puerto Rico needed to have some uh, money that was borrowed uh, so that they could function because the resources were being taken off the island. Uh, that debt, though, became so uh, oppressive uh, that uh, since then the debt has been, as you've mentioned, sometimes renegotiated. We've had new bonds issued. But basically what they do is they pay off the old bonds to the banks and the hedge funds that took an interest in them, and the underlying principle uh, and interest uh continues to rise, much like yeah. uh, for an individual as a credit card. You know, they borrowed $200, but because they might have been late in making a payment, uh, the costs and fees are, you know, go into the hundreds and, and thousands of dollars, and pretty soon they're just p- barely able to pay off the interest, let alone get back down to the principal. And it's because of what you've described as a, as a Ponzi scheme with the banks. Yeah, and, and that's uh, that's an excellent analogy, and I'll give you just a little a little more context. Um, a Puerto Rico, the economy, the, the the biggest game in town in Puerto Rico right now is the public sector. In other words, getting on the government payroll. And we have to let's let's face it. There's 78 mayors in Puerto Rico and 78 mayoral payroll municipal payrolls. Here in New York, that would be the equivalent on a population basis of having something like 185 mayors instead of one. I mean, it's that, it's somewhat surrealistic. But the reason for that is because Puerto Rico has been specifically and statutorily prevented from having a private sector. So that's, it's not like, oh, everyone wants to get, uh, wants to get their brother-in-law on some, in some no-show job. It's that, excuse me, there's no jobs. <laughs> there is no private. So if you specifically disallow people from running their own, their own economy and you, and you force this on them. So that's what people need to understand that it's, it's, it's a bloated public sector, but not because of some inherent character flaw. 
It's because of a structural, what's been, this is the accretion. This is what's been happening and it's been covered over. And as you said, eventually you you just can't cover it enough. There's a second point. Let me just real quick. Sometimes it's done very cynically at PREPA, the electrical authority. During the administration of Luis Fortuño, who is supposedly a very uh, conservative and uh, uh, supported Mitt Romney, and he's at right now at Steptoe and Johnson in, in Washington and writing art- articles about Puerto Rico has a has a lending problem and has to uh, be careful with it, with its expenditures. Well, first, doing Luis Fortuño's term in office was the highest uh, accretion of debt in history during his four years. Puerto Rico, he, he borrowed over $16 billion. That's number one. Number two, during that term, PREPA, there was a series of of double A bonds, municipal bonds issue issued in the in the mid to late nineties for uh, to help Puerto supposedly uh, from the mid to late nineties and the early two thousands to help uh, get over this this funding hump. It was a series, of, and you can I can send you the link so that you can see for yourself how that money was spent. It's even in the uh, in the underwriters the, the documents. In the in, in the what was filed with the SEC, where you see exactly the breakdown of the of the expenditures, over eighty percent of each successive bond was not for the purchase of oil, or for the upkeep or maintenance of of the of the power plants or maintaining the infrastructure, not for paying salaries, not even for the payment on the principal of antecedent debt. Over eighty percent of each bond was to pay off the interest on the immediately preceding bond. That's a Ponzi scheme. And, and to, to have that just nakedly being issued by Wall Street underwriters, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's an enormous financial cynicism. And it's like the, the murder weapon is right there on the dining room table and no one is acknowledging it. I don't know why the Department of Justice, the SEC, at what point are they gonna go after those? I mean, that to me, is where you need to start if you're talking about economic reform, not not creating a financial control board and then inflicting on austerity on the whole rest of the island. You need to figure out, you know, who it is that cooked up these financial instruments. Well, let's let's talk about that because you know when you when you look at this, and we've talked about a number of things that really uh, tie Puerto Rico's hands in trying to have any sort of uh, suitable economy, on top of. Uh, the damage and suffering that they've sustained as a result of the hurricane, you just think that um, there's not one way to get out of this. Let me uh, let me ask you, Nelson, what do you think needs to be done to get Puerto Rico back going in the right direction? I think there's a sort of a uh, a, a range of options, and all of them can can help to contribute. Um, one term that I've heard is, is, is called multiple sovereignties. And, what I, and what's meant by that is the issue about what Puerto Rico becoming independent or uh, its political status. Well, first of all, the statehood, that's a whole other discussion. I don't think it's likely, likely to happen anytime soon. It's a matter of opinion, but I, can, I think there's some, you know, just some of the economic issues that we just discussed are, are strongly argue in, fa- in favor of the people wanting it to keep it just the way it is for, right. for, their, for their benefit. Um, but here's something that, that can be done. Those 20 years tax incentive deals that are offered, there's something called Act 20 and Act 22 that, uh, that is operating in the Puerto Rican le- uh, legal system right now. 
and it gives those 20-year tax abatement deals to basically high net worth individuals and foreign corporations, well, they should extend those same corporate uh, and economic incentives to small business people on the island. That makes a lot of sense. If you can, if you can extend these tax abatement deals to foreign capital, help the, the small business person in Puerto Rico, give them some of that same ta tax relief. So that's number one, to instead of having these, or in addition to having these 20 year tax payment deals, extend them to your own people on, on the island. Secondly, to condition these with, a, with, a, with an uh, insular benefits agreement, another an agreement that applies to the island so that any of these co foreign corporations that get these tw uh, 20 year tax abatements, they should be by, by contract, they should be negotiated and in writing that they will repatriate a certain, a stipulated proportion of their profits into Puerto Rican infrastructure, because as you said, the profits are offshore, and we have a problem with companies making huge amounts of money, using the island infrastructure, and then leaving. So it would just make a lot of sense that if they're going to have these enormous tax benefits, that they, that they, you know, a small piece, a negotiated piece of that goes into maintaining the roads, the bridges, the electrical system, all the elements that these that these businesses are using. That's the second one. Third one is to clearly to diversify the energy mix in Puerto Rico. There's air, right? There's wind, water, sun. There are these abundant natural resources that can be part of a, a much more a, more a much modern diversified energy mix. There's no reason why Puerto Rico, that is surrounded by all all that, all that natural abundance, can't convert it into energy. Another one is to provide, I believe, agricultural incentives because the land at Puerto Rico is no less fertile than it was a hundred years ago. So there can be, there are enormous agricultural opportunities in, in Puerto Rico. So you start looking at that, you know, you start incentivizing uh, and creating the incentives for the Puerto Ricans themselves, which shouldn't be done. And there's an urgency to this. And this plays into the hands again of there's this little thin elite, both in Wall Street, well, all over the world. There's sort of these neoliberal solutions and uh, they sound good up front. Later on, you realize that's sort of a, uh, it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Uh, there, there's a host of P3s, public-private partnerships, that are being considered all over Puerto Rico now for the roads, bridges, the public infrastructure, anything that's owned by the government, the schools, hospitals, roads, bridges, airports. So all of these now literally are up for grabs. And if we're not careful, no matter what the status of Puerto Rico becomes ostensibly state independent, what does it matter if the, if the entire island's infrastructure has become an ATM for Wall Street, if everything has been converted into a public-private partnership? And I think that is something, a direction that we need to be very careful about, because it's happening already. They're looking at uh, privatizing the entire school system. They've shut down over 200 schools. They've put out RFPs for charter schools in Puerto Rico. And they've done the same for the electrical system. So there's a lot that, can ha that could happen very quickly, and there are vested interests. A little, there's a, just a little. Yo he dicho esto en español. Mejor un patriota en Nueva York que un vende patria en Puerto Rico. There are some people in Puerto Rico that would be willing to sell off even the beaches of Puerto Rico if it puts money in their pocket. So we need to be careful about all this. Yes, you do. And, you know, the problem is with these loans when when they're trying to renegotiate and bring more money into the island, uh, you know, the banks and the, the U.S. corporations say, OK, what else do you have? What else can we take? 
Um, and so now they're taking, as you indicated, you know, perhaps the electrical and power authorities, perhaps the schools, uh, and there's, it's just going to be, you know, a shell that is gutted um, if that uh, continues. So I'll give you, I'll give you a, one real a recent one. There's FEMA money going in now to, to help redevelop uh, and recover some of the, the some of the blasted homes all over the island. Well, the governor at one point said, you know. We, we don't want to uh, deploy this money our, our, in the coastal areas because there could be another hurricane. So we're going to use the FEMA money, but if you want it, you need to move. You need to vacate your coastal home and move inland. Then we'll give you this loan or whatever, a few thousand bucks. So w- what I'm seeing is contra the El Gobernador. The very governor of Puerto Rico is colluding with real estate and, and hotel interests to vacate the coastline. And it's all under the rubric of we're trying to protect the Puerto Rican coastline so you know, people don't get – when it comes that close to home, you're in a difficult spot when your own governor is negotiating your land out from under your feet. Right. And uh, obviously Puerto Rico's coastline is a, is a gem of the Caribbean and uh, is not something that should be, uh, you know, given away. And when you see these, you, you know, you get a big hotel invested into the, uh, you know, a coastal area. Uh, you know, the hotel is nice and the beach there is nice. And then they put up a fence around it and there's no ancillary benefit to the community, which you talked about. If you're going to get the benefits of investment in Puerto Rico, you should also give some of the money uh, back into the area where you're investing. Uh, the, the video Despacito. Have you seen that the the music video for that? Yes, you've heard the song, right? Yes, Despacito. Yes. the music video is the most viewed video in all of human history. I think it has 5.6 billion views. The most viewed. I mean, you could just look it up. Just Google it. So the irony is that the entirety of that video was shot in La Perla, which is basically a shanty town in San Juan. So the irony is everyone, they see the video. Wow, it's so colorful, so quaint, so charming. You have tourists from China, Russia, Australia. They, now they go into La Perla, which previously people were afraid to go into. They, and I guess they want the natives to dance despacito, whatever. But they, 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 now it's, it's awash with tourists. It is that same area. That's one of the areas that has, not, that has received very little federal monies because they're trying to get those people to move so they can build hotels there. So that's just interesting that the Despacito video, everyone loves it, and it's going to disappear if we if we don't keep an eye on it. Well, Nelson Dennis, thank you very much for enlightening us and, and joining us on Miranda Warnings. We have a feature on Miranda Warnings called Movie Book or Music, where you can share a, a movie book or musical performance that means something to you. Despacito certainly uh, would fall in that category. Uh, perhaps uh, your book. Uh, the war against all Puerto Ricans. Uh, anything else you want to share with us uh, that we might want to take a look at uh, to further enlighten us? You mean on this issue? On any on, issue. On, anything. On an issue. Uh, you know, I, there was an interesting movie called La Granja. La Granja by a, a Puerto Rican film director. It just came out about t- two years ago. And it gave a sense of what where the sort of the feeling and what Puerto Rico is, is going through. So uh, I think it, they have it subtitled, uh, but it, it's, it's called La Granja. Excellent. Nelson Dennis, thank you very much for your time and for all the work and passion you bring into trying to make Puerto Rico a better place. Thank you, Nelson. Thank you. Pleasure. This has been the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. 
for all things legal and some that aren't.